First Corinthians has been our place of study for the last few weeks. I encourage you to open your Bibles as we come back. Considering the weakness of wisdom and the power of the cross. Paul has written this letter, or he wrote this letter so many years ago, opening up with a detailed defense of why in his preaching ministry, why in his teaching ministry, why in his life, he was so singularly focused on what he calls the message of the cross, or what he sometimes calls simply the wisdom of God. A wisdom that is well summarized in the words of of the valley of vision, that the way up is the way down. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to give is to receive. That to have nothing is to possess everything. That to bear the cross is to wear a crown. This was the message. When Paul says he preaches the message of the cross and the wisdom of God, this is what he's talking about. This is what he expounded wherever he went. The wisdom of God versus all the wisdom of man, which tells you that the way up is the way up. That to wear the crown is to wear the crown. That to take is to receive. That to seek your own glory is to find your own satisfaction. All of that wisdom of the world that manifests itself in all kinds of ways is what Paul was steadfastly combating against. He steadfastly set himself against because God had steadfastly set himself against it. And so in chapter 1, what he's been giving us is a, a series of contrasts really explaining all the while the reasons why he was so committed to this message of God's wisdom. The first of which you remember was the power of the cross. Simply the fact that some people may hear this message and may, may uh, receive it as nothing more than naive foolishness. But those that God is touching, it comes across as the most powerful thing they've ever heard. He talks about the poverty of human wisdom, how that time after time after time when men have sought to find their own answers, they find, a, uh, find themselves empty once again. The message, whether it be self-will or pride or self-glory or self-seeking or self-esteem of mankind, all of those things, God demands that we renounce them. God demands that we set them aside. God demands that we commit ourselves completely to the renunciation of our own wisdom and the affection and love of His. To that end, Paul showed us the plan for God's wisdom and the praise for God's wisdom, ultimately the proof of God's wisdom, the fact that within the church of God, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble have been called, but God has consistently shown His power by calling the weak things of the world and raising them up to bring to nothing all the things that the world thinks are something. Ultimately, we saw at the end of chapter five, chapter 1, excuse me, the purpose of God's wisdom, that no one would boast, that no one would seek the glory that belongs only to God. And this is the summary. If you see at the end of chapter 3 in verse 18, this is really the summary of it all over again. As Paul comes to that chapter, he says, look, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks that he's wise in this age, he must become a fool in order to become wise. So here you are, 
preening about, crowing about, going about in life, walking in your own boast, thinking that you're something. And Paul says, you're nothing. You're self-deceived. And the reason that you're self-deceived is because you think you're wise. You think you have answers and you won't renounce your own wisdom. You won't declare yourself a fool. Against all that, Paul says he was committed singularly to the message of God's wisdom, which is the message of the cross. The message that the way down is the way up. That the pathway of humility is really the pathway of restoration. The pathway of glory. Paul then completely renounced all human answers, all human wisdom, all human devices, all human schemes, all human philosophies, all human rituals. None of that stuff could ever do what he says only God can do. None of that stuff has any answers for life. None of their opinions of any man-made source have any, uh, make any difference, has any value for anything in terms of eternity or of life. Paul's laid out all of this for the convincing reasons why he commits himself completely and singularly to the message of the cross. But he's not done yet. Because as we finish up chapter 1 and round that out, come into chapter 2, what we find is that Paul has one more reason left. One final reason for his commitment to the wisdom of God. It's introduced to us in the first verse and really comes for us in the first five verses of chapter 2. And that is Paul's personal preaching testimony. The preaching testimony of the, of the Apostle Paul. He rounds out his argument by giving them reminders of his own ministry when he was among them and how he conducted himself exactly in accordance with everything that he's already said to them here. He does it, by the way, connecting by this uh, with a conjunction at the, end of, at the beginning of chapter 1, a kaigo in Greek, showing that he is adding to here what he's already said to them so far and reminds them of his own preaching testimony. Now to that end, he first of all, as he gets into this preaching testimony, he wants them to remember the content of what he preached to them. Everything he said to them so far is demonstrating the fact, he says in verse 1, that when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, he says, with lofty speech or of wisdom. He didn't come proclaiming the message of God with all of the human insights and understanding supplementary to it. He didn't fill his time and his teaching with the insights or the pithy slogans or expressions that he could glean from the world. We'll talk about this in a a moment, but all this stands against the backdrop of an enormous culture of sophistry and oratory in the Greek world, particularly those living in Athens and Corinth, a culture that was focused on both style and on content of its speakers. And Paul is stating plainly that when he came to them, he steadfastly rejected both of those things. He didn't give any of his time to that stuff. Although it might have impressed some people, it might have ranked him among the notable and popular speakers in town, might have attracted something more of a crowd. That was the environment 
that he found himself in in Corinth. They sought after just those kinds of things. They welcomed just those kinds of speakers. It was a climate where people were eager to be entertained by traveling orators. These men who eventually became known in Greek culture as the sophists. The wise men of Greek culture. These men who would go around putting on display not only their skill of eloquence and rhetoric, but also putting on display their their breadth of knowledge in all things related to politics and philosophy and poetry and medicine and morality. Things from household management to everything having to do with human affairs. They would come to town and they would speak on all of these subjects and they would draw enormous crowds into all of their amphitheaters and auditoriums. These, these sophists were sometimes credited actually with the rise of democracy in the ancient world. They were the ones who were said to introduce into public discourse for the first time discussions among the people regarding, uh, regarding where society and where politics should go. It was they who made these contributions and brought these discussions and engaged people into, into all of this discourse. And so many, many of these young sophists would come along as sort of celebrities in town and garner for themselves a name. And, and the young men who wanted to succeed in the world and particularly in political careers would flock to their speeches to learn from them. Sometimes they would even contract them as private tutors to develop them in areas of knowledge on various subjects, sometimes even in their own oratory, to learn how to speak better. In fact, the words that Paul uses in verse 1, these words are particularly associated with sophistry. Words like lofty speech and wisdom. Three Greek words there that all are used repeatedly in the textbooks of oratory throughout the ancient world. So it's not coincidental that Paul throws those words in there. He's stating in no uncertain terms that he stridently rejected a model of ministry that would have filled his days and filled his time with the latest insights with the current trends on human affairs, political events, management, philosophy, or any overall general lesson of life. Clearly, there was an expectation that Paul would do this. There were factions forming in the church that were already forming against him, (coughs) clamoring after just this kind of teaching. And Paul's declaring up front his commitment against it. He says in verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That refers to the content of what He taught them. He taught them exclusively the message of the cross. Which we've said in last week's is not really just a retelling of the story of the crucifixion over and over again. This is the message of the cross with all of its implications regarding sin and rebellion 
and pride and all of its all of its message about humility and holiness and righteousness. This is what Paul preached to them. It was the message of God's wisdom, the message contained in God's word, as opposed to everything else. Acts eighteen eleven says he spent a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. So he gave them the whole counsel of God. He didn't hold back from them anything that would have been beneficial to them from God's word. But what he stridently avoided was trying to mix together, along with God's wisdom, any of the so-called wisdom of the world. Because Paul understood that it was the wisdom of God alone which would be the thing that would lift people out of darkness and bring them on a path of truth. He understood that it was the message of God alone that would lift them out of a waywardness and a rebellion and a path of self-destruction and set them back on a path of peace. It was only the message of a cross by which they could make sense of all the chaotic world around them. It was only a message of the cross by which their souls could be redeemed to God and along with that their homes and their careers and everything about them for God's glory and not for their own. And so Paul wouldn't deviate into the empty and broken ideologies and opinions of the most revered minds of the world no matter how popular they were. Because as Paul's already said back in chapter 1, that all that stuff, no matter how esteemed it is, he says the foolishness of God is wiser than all of it. That is to say that the most insignificant truth of God, whatever it is, regarding whatever it is, the most insignificant truth is more necessary, more helpful, more wise than the most praised idea that could come from any human source conceivable. And so Paul says, I was determined to know none of that. None of it. He would not adulterate his ministry. He would not prostitute his ministry by filling it with that junk. He wouldn't cheapen his pulpit, as it were, to replace the preaching of God's word with whatever perceived clever insights of the world, no matter how popular they would have made him, no matter how many crowds it would have attracted, it would have been useless spiritually. And worse than that, it would have been antithetical to the gospel because as he's told us, God has set himself against that kind of wisdom. Now that kind of commitment has always been rare, you understand? This kind of preacher has always been rare. Never more so in our own day, where in many pulpits, you're as likely to hear a message on time management as you are on true discipleship, right? Where you're always hearing the flooding of God's pulpit with the message of the world. And the chief commitment of every preacher is a commitment to drawing a crowd above everything. Paul's dedication, he says, was to a singular message, the cross of Christ, the wisdom of God, and it would not be suited with any other paradigm from the world. That kind of commitment has long since been jettisoned by too many pulpits as irrelevant, as too theological, as too over people's heads. And yet the words of Paul ring true 
2 Timothy chapter 4, that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth. And they'll wander off into myths. They'll wander off into whatever popular level of teaching the culture demands. Paul steadfastly decided against such presentations. Because he knew the danger, quite honestly, the danger is of making people religious without changing them. The danger is of generating a form of godliness that has no power. The danger is of reforming a person on the outside, but leaving them unchanged on the inside. The danger is of giving people a mask by which they can fool everyone else, while in the side they're still corrupt and full of dead men's bones. The danger is that people could appear for a while religious, but have no transforming power of God that ever touches their hearts. And Paul knew that all too well. And so he committed himself exclusively to the governing standard of God's wisdom in everything he did, everything he did. Well, that had implications not only for the content of his preaching, but for the character of it. For the character of it. Paul says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. See, when Paul committed himself to the singular message of the gospel, he was committing himself to a message that would appear to the world to be naive, foolish, weak, and despised. All the things that Paul has already outlined as being associated with the wisdom of God in chapter 1. And so by extension, to preach such a message would be to be characterized the same way yourself. To be committed to the message that the world sees as foolish and weak and despised is to be yourself characterized as foolish and weak and despised, which is exactly what Paul says his preaching was characterized as. Now, this is an interesting verse because people read it all the time and they say, well, man, that doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul was the one who wrote in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He tells Timothy later on, you remember in 2 Timothy, he says, don't have a spirit of timidity or fear. He tells them in 2 Timothy 1.8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. He's always telling other people, don't be ashamed, don't be fearful. And so it wouldn't make sense, certainly, that Paul would himself be fearful and trembling people think. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily mean that Paul showed it on the outside. He could have been fearful on the inside. As a matter of fact, in Acts 18, right there in the record of Paul's preaching in Corinth, we're told that the Lord had to come to him in a night vision and said to him, Do not be afraid. 
But go on speaking, he says in verse 9, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many people in this city who are mine. In other words, the Lord had already elected and selected a number of people. They may not profess faith yet, but he says, keep on preaching, Paul. They will. They will. And it it certainly would make sense. It's possible that Paul would have been intimidated in the face of a society that was so enamored with sophisticated rhetoric and so taken by the wisdom of his own teachers. It seems legitimate that he would have at times been fearful preaching in a culture that was so overwhelmed by sin and so fascinated with sophistry and pseudo-intellectualism. There was no doubt, it's no doubt that it was intimidating and Acts seems to confirm that it was fearful at times. It always is when you're preaching in that kind of environment. But really, I don't even think that's what Paul's talking about here. He, he was no doubt fearful at times inside, but I really think what he's talking about here is the way that other people referred to his ministry. Because quite honestly, as you go through Corinthians, you see this over and over again. This is the way that people described Paul over and over again. In fact, right over in chapter 4, verse 10, Paul sort of speaking sarcastically to the Corinthians. And he says... We, that is the apostles, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute to the present hour. We are hungry and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. So here he says, at least by their perception, Paul says, I'm weak. I'm insignificant. I'm disreputable, dishonorable, at least in your eyes. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, he quotes his critics, who he says, They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is nothing. It's of no account, but literally the word's nothing. He's nothing, that guy. He's weak. He's he's dishonorable. He's insignificant. This is the way they characterize Paul. He was of no account to the world. He was unrecognized, and therefore he was unimportant. Now, you have to understand this is all against a backdrop of a culture that was consumed with the quasi-intellectualism of these sophists. These guys were trained and skilled, not just in the popular topics of the day, but in their personal presentations as well. In fact, their oratory and their rhetoric was as important to them as the content of what they spoke. And they prided themselves on their ability to move people, to sway people, to impress people, with their rhetoric. It created a culture of competition and comparison constantly among themselves. And eventually, it impacted the church. The people in the church now wanted to have those kinds of presentations in their midst. Quintilian was an ancient teacher of oratory. 
and rhetoric from Spain. He lived in the first century along with the Apostle Paul, and he describes the kind of environment that was promoted by these sophists. This is what he writes. He says, I strongly disapprove of the prevailing practice of allowing boys to stand up or leap from the seats in expression of their applause. The worst form of politeness, as it has come to be called, is that of mutual and indiscriminate applause, a practice which is unseemly, the, uh, uh, theatrical, and unworthy of, decently discipline, of a decently disciplined school. Every effusion is greeted with a storm of ready-made applause. In the schools of today, we see boys stooping forward, ready to spring to their feet, at the close of each period, they not, only, they not merely rise, but rush forward with shouts of unseemly enthusiasm. Such compliments are mutual, and the success of an oration consists in this kind of applause. The result is vanity and empty self-sufficiency carried to such an extent that intoxicated by wild enthusiasm of their fellow pupils, they conceive a spite against their master if his praise does not come up to their expectation. See, this is what the culture was all about. It was all about whether or not you, by your rhetoric and by your presentation, could generate the same kind of wild, enthusiastic applause and praise that the next guy did. And if you didn't, your people would hold you in spite. They would resent you as worthless. Now, this had infiltrated the church. This had come into the church And these people were now clamoring after. They wanted Paul to make a presentation just like what they were seeing in the world. They wanted him to bring all of the content and all the rhetoric and all the presentation. And they wanted Paul now to measure himself by the same standards of applause that all these other guys were seeking. That kind of vanity and pride of these sophists. It was as much about the theatrics as it was about the content. It was all about eliciting the response of a crowd more than it was about giving substance. In fact, Pliny the Younger, who was a lawyer and government official in the day, he wrote that he would not even so much as recommend someone to a post unless they had the ability to generate this kind of response from a crowd of people. These were the These were the sought-after speakers. They traveled around from city to city, filling the amphitheaters of their day, becoming the main attraction at the dinner parties of the social elite. Many of them became virtual celebrities. And as you might imagine, they were able to charge quite a handsome fee. It became a means of an income for them, and a very generous one. They became recognized as the experts in points of law, and of morality, and human affairs, and politics. They were the public speakers, but they were also the tutors and the dinner guests of the elite. In fact, Socrates was scolded at one point by one of these sophists, a man named Antiphon, who reportedly said to Socrates, he said to him, you declined to take money for your society, yet... If you believed your cloak or your house or anything you possess to be worthy of money, you would not part with it for nothing or even for less than its value. Clearly then, if you set any value on your society, you would insist on the proper price for that too. 
It may well be that you're a just man because you do not cheat people through avarice, but wise you cannot be since your knowledge is not worth anything. You know what he's saying to Socrates? He's saying, look, if your knowledge and if what you taught and if what you were conveying to people was worth something, you'd charge for it. You'd charge for it. You'd make a handsome fee for it. And so he was, he was berating Socrates because he was saying, look, if, because you don't take any money, what you teach is worthless. Suffice it to say, that became a very prevailing view of the sophist of Paul's day. The value of a person's message was seen as directly related to the applause they could generate and the price they could demand. End of story. It was in the midst of this kind of society that Paul came. And he preached a message that everyone else immediately decided was weak, was unskilled, and contemptible. In fact, he makes reference to those who had come into the church and set themselves up now as what they called super apostles. These are the men who were going to outdo Paul at being an apostle. They were going to attract bigger crowds. They were going to generate more applause. They were going to bring in the world. They were going to impress others. If you have your Bibles, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul directly responds to this. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 5. He says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. Notice verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the God's gospel to you free of charge. You see, the chief complaints and the chief criticisms against Paul were, first of all, that he's unskilled, and second of all, he doesn't take a stipend. So, what can he be worth? He's weak, he's poor, he's poorly clothed, he's hungry all the time. Paul was working by his own hands when he was at Corinth, making tents so that he wouldn't have to charge the people for the preaching of the gospel. He was working, probably uh, they, they've uh, excavated some of these shops that tent makers would work in. It was something like a 13 by 13 room with an 8 foot ceiling. Here he was in this little shop all day long, every day, kind of doing the repairs to the tents and all the leather fixings or whatever it was and preaching by night and making his way in whatever way he could. He wasn't sought after. He didn't get the accolades of the world. No one was paying him a high price. No one was seeking after him. He was unnoticed. He was unsophisticated in the world's eyes. He was unimportant. He was uninfluential. He was all of those things. And Paul says, I liked it that way. That's exactly what I wanted to be. 
Because for me to seek after all those other things, for me to seek after the accolades, for me to seek after the applause, for me to do the things that would generate all the crowds and generate all of the enthusiasm, for me to measure myself by their applause or by their cash or whatever it might be, would have been to adulterate the gospel, he says. And so I was with you, he says, truly in weakness and in fear and in trembling and my speech and my message was not in the plausible words of wisdom. The word there is pathos, the word for plausible words of wisdom, the pathos of wisdom, the persuasive words, the great presentations, skillfully presented, well choreographed, impressive to the mind and engaging to the imagination. I wasn't there to entertain, to impress, to adapt myself to the the pleasures of the audience. Didn't have any of that, Paul says. None of that. But what he did have, he says, was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That is to say, very simply, lives are being changed. Broken lives are being changed. Bottomed out lives are being changed. People who had reached the end of their rope and the end of themselves, they're hearing a message of forgiveness and restoration. Corporate meetings may not have been filled with the raucous applause and the clever one-liners of these rhetoricians, but they were filled with a congregation of people redeemed from the misery of their sin. They were filled with a group of people whose hearts had been transformed, whose affections had been transformed, whose attitudes had been transformed, whose guilt and shame had been eradicated, whose homes had been restored, whose peace of mind and stability had been restored. Because they heard the only message that ever had the power to change someone from the inside. And this was the only power Paul ever desired. It was the only influence he ever wanted to have. It was the influence of God's truth on the human heart. It was the influence that can show someone the shame of their sin and the glory of righteousness. It was the influence to demonstrate to people the root of pride and rebellion and the demand for a broken and contrite heart before God. It was the Word of God, it was the wisdom of God demonstrated through the cross of Christ that demolishes all the idols that we're constantly setting up in our heart all the accolades of the world, all the imaginations that we pursue after that set us against God and against His wisdom. It was demolishing all those things and it was setting God back in the right place where He belonged. It was eradicating all confidence in man, all confidence in self, and it was placing people back in humble submission to their Maker. This is what the gospel is meant to do. This is what preaching is meant to do. And this is what the wisdom and the rhetoric and all the impressive presentations of men will never do. 
will never have the power to do. It can draw a crowd. It can entertain. It might even move you. But it won't change you. And so Paul says in verse 5, he says, I did all this so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul knew the dangers of superficial religion. Paul knew the dangers of external reform without internal transformation. He knew the attempts that people make time after time after time to clean up their lives. But their hearts are as corrupt as ever. And the danger in all that is that people who ground what they think is a religious experience in the wisdom of men and nothing more are forever vulnerable to a more clever argument, to a more touching story, to a more impressive presentation, to a more plausible line of reasoning, to a more popular personality. Folks, if there's a crisis in the church today, it's a crisis in the confidence regarding the converting power of God's Word. It's a crisis of confidence in the transforming and sanctifying power of the Word of God and of the Gospel. It's a a crisis where people no longer believe that men are truly sinners and truly need to be transformed from rebels against God to children of God. It's a crisis where people no longer believe the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's a crisis of replacing the wisdom of God with the rhetoric of men, the presentations of men, the sophistry of men. It's a crisis of people who don't shun any of that anymore, who are no longer well pleased by the foolishness of preaching to see men be saved. Westminster Shorter Catechism states the Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith. That's what we believe. That's what we believe. That's the message that we preach. It's the message that you hear if you come to this place is that you might try and try and try and try to reform yourself. You might try and try and try to put on religion. You might have tried all kinds of tricks of the trade, all kinds of schemes and plans that arise from nothing more from the wisdom of men, and you think that you've tried it all and you've given up, and we're here to tell you you haven't tried the gospel. If your life is untransformed, if your life's still full of sin, it's because you haven't Listen to the wisdom of God. It's the only thing that can change you. It's the only thing that transforms a heart. The only thing that uh, transforms someone from the inside out. Makes them a new creature in Christ. Causes old things to pass away. And causes all things to become new. That's the only message we preach. Because it's the only message that saves. It's the only message worth preaching. It's the only message that transforms people. Do you believe that? Are you committed to that? Paul was. And God's looking for a people. 
today who are just as committed as ever to that. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for the gospel. It has touched our lives and we give personal testimony. We once were wayward, lost, and in darkness. We once were trapped in our guilt and shame and the sin to which we were born. We once were those walking around in our pride, but really in our weakness, hoping that we had the answers of life, but believing lies. It was your gospel that broke through. It was your gospel that transformed us. It was your wisdom that saved us and sanctifies us. Lord, guard us from ever becoming enamored with anything else that might draw a crowd and draw the applause and the praise of men, but would be so bankrupt. A message that the world needs is the message of the cross. We want to preach it, Lord. May you help us. May you use us to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.